1: This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis, a.k.a. crumbly joints. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter.
2: Hello and welcome to this edition of Join Action. This week we have the privilege of discussing losing weight in osteoarthritis, the why and how. And we're joined by none other than Steve Messier. Steve has been at Wake Forest for 36 years. He's the director of the J.B. Snow Biomechanics Lab and teaches undergraduate biomechanics and human gross anatomy, as well as graduate biomechanics. He's got 26 years of clinical trial experience concerning osteoarthritis of the knee and his team of clinicians and researchers are recognized for their research, particularly regarding the effects of weight loss and exercise on knee osteoarthritis, pain, function, strength and gait mechanics. And that's how I've had the pleasure of getting to know Steve and it's great to have you along and thanks very much for coming.
3: It's a pleasure to be here, David.
2: Great to have an opportunity to see you face-to-face. It's been a while, and it will probably be a while yet before we see each other in a pub somewhere. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be?
3: That's a tough question. I guess I would say I'm focused. I'm passionate about my work. And for the few things that I, that I do well, uh, I try to be humble. Like right? That's about it. That's not five words. That's three, but that's enough.
2: No, no, no. It's a pleasure to hear you describe that, and I completely agree with all of what you've said. And having had the privilege of working with you for a long while, I uh, particularly appreciate your passion and your humility. It's not often we see a lot of that, so I really applaud you for that. What impact does excess weight have on osteoarthritis and joint loads? And you've sort of been the doyen in this field and led a lot of the work, so you could just tell us a little bit about that.
3: I mean, it has a tremendous impact, obviously. About half the people who have knee osteoarthritis are either overweight or obese. The impact of that excess of weight influences a lot of things. One, the obvious thing is that it influences the joint loads. Every time you take a step it's two to four times higher in joint loads on your knee than it would be if you were normal weight. And we'll talk about what happens when you try to lose weight later, but uh, as you increase your weight the load on your knee increases exponentially. It's not just a one-to-one relationship. But the other thing that uh, obesity does is it increases inflammation. And when I talk to patients, I talk about the inflammatory markers. And you remember the first video game? You probably weren't born yet, David, but um, (laughs) Pac-Man. Right, there was Pac-Man. I think actually Pac-Man's coming I think, back. I think
2: I was actually born. I was born then, surprisingly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know,
3: you have that Pac-Man and it's going and it's trying to eat things. Well, that's what these inflammatory cytokines do. They go and they, tr- and they eat the cartilage and they cause inflammation. And so both, So both. so we think there's really two major pathways to osteoarthritis. One is just the load on the joint And the other is the inflammatory pathway and obesity impacts both of those things. And so you get kind of a double whammy there.
2: Yeah. And Steve's been the one who's led our understanding of how obesity impacts joint loads. And I think the other important point in what Steve was just saying about half of a person's risk of developing osteoarthritis is attributable to body weight, to overweight and obesity. And so, what are the benefits if you have osteoarthritis in losing weight?
3: Well, the first thing before we get to that is that losing weight is not easy. <laughs> and losing weight and keeping it off is even more difficult. And, and so why, why is losing weight so difficult? And why is keeping it off so difficult? Oh, well, because your body acts in starvation mode, right? It increases feelings of hunger. It suppresses satiety. It slows your metabolic rate, and all these things then are an attempt to, for your body to defend your higher body weight. So you're really there's a lot of biological things you're fighting against all the time. So don't ever want to say that you know why can't you lose a few pounds? It is not easy to do. Right. So. Uh, you're in for, if someone's trying to lose weight and keep it off, they're in for a fight <laughs> Okay, uh, against their own body. And, and people need help to do that most of the time. People need help. You know, we have patients in our study, and one guy got up and said, why didn't my doctor tell me I needed help? You know, it was really impactful. It was just a short statement, but it meant a lot. So people do need help, and that's what we're here to do, is try to inform them and to help them lose that weight. So what happens when you do, and how much weight loss is good for you? So first thing is for your joint loads, for every pound that you lose, you lose four pounds of stress off your knee.
2: And uh, and just for those who live in empirical countries, um, Steve's from the U.S., so they haven't necessarily migrated to kilograms yet, but the the same translates (laughs) into kilograms.
3: The ratio is still the same. (laughs) The ratio. (laughs) Uh, Well said. Well said, my friend. (laughs) So it's a one to four ratio, whether in pounds or kilograms. Okay. (laughs) And, And so you're getting, essentially, as you lose weight, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. Right? I tell our participants, I wish my stock portfolio did that well. Well, right now it's not doing well at all. <laughs> so,
2: I think you can speak I, for I all, all of us first. <laughs> yeah.
3: But it's a one to four relationship. And so there's a lot of motivation to lose even a little bit. Because it takes a lot of stress. You it. So that how much? Well, 5 We've done a study and just as little as 5% of your, of your weight. If you lose 5%. Percent of your weight over a period of 18 months, your pain will decrease by 30 percent. To give you an idea of what that means, about if you're taking nonsteroidal anti inflammatory drugs, about half the people who take those get about a 30 percent decrease in pain. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking on average with that weight loss. So you're getting a lot more bang for your buck than you do even with nonsteroidal anti inflammatory. So we did that study. And as most Americans will be, we thought, well, if 5% is good, what happens if you do more? And so we did a study with 10%, which you were a big part of, David. It was called IDEA. And indeed, we saw that a 10% weight loss essentially doubled the effect. That is, you had a decrease in pain of over 50% and an improvement in function of about the same amount. Importantly also, uh, we did a psychological aspect to this study and we improved people's self-efficacy or the confidence that they had in themselves, increased about the same amount as function did. So virtually every single outcome that we looked at, the combination, now the other thing, it was the combination of diet and exercise that was the best. So this study had exercise only, diet only, and diet plus exercise. All three groups did well, but diet plus exercise was the clear winner on everything. And how much exercise? Just a modest amount of exercise. A little walking, a little strength training, three times a week for an hour, right, for 18 months, and a 10% weight loss was the key. And without that weight loss, just the exercise by itself is good, but it's not nearly as good as when you have the weight loss with it. So the weight loss is really the key.
2: Superb. I just wonder if you could just touch briefly on other benefits that you may attain in terms of other health problems, life expectancy, uh, need for surgery, those sorts of things.
3: Yeah. So, what we would like to do is to be able to show that this intervention, that the exercise and the weight loss combined would decrease the number of joint replacements. That would be fantastic. You and I, and a number of others, are, are Are designing a program now to look at just that, but we don't have data right now to show that it has that kind of an effect. Uh, We don't have an joint replacement. As far as all the other effects, as I said, quality of life is better, pain goes down, function is better, uh, your confidence that you can lose weight and keep it off is better. Just about every single outcome that you can think of that's clinically important. The combination of diet plus exercise is I think right now, probably the best intervention. It's, yeah. better, than, it's better than any drug and it's better than surgery.
2: Yeah, and it, I, I think whilst it's the, you don't necessarily have the data from idea, there are other studies in other diseases where people have lost similar amounts of weight that have had big meaningful improvements on other health outcomes, including uh, diabetes, heart disease and, sure. and life expectancy.
3: Yeah, we have people that have that have lost 20 or 30 pounds and they go into their doctor and they had type 2 di- diabetes and the doctor goes, what happened? It's not rocket science, you know, 95% of type 2 diabetes will go away if you lose enough weight.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it had big profound effects. Now, you've already touched a little bit of, upon this in terms of 5%, 30% improvement a 10% weight loss leading to a 50% improvement in a person's symptoms. Is more weight loss consistently better?
3: Yeah, because we then looked with the IDEA trial, we then looked at people who lost 20% or more of their body weight. And that's a lot of weight. <laughs> and what we found was that, well, 10% with exercise, of course, with uh, that no, no, well, this study was just, it didn't matter whether you had exercise or not, okay? So uh, 10% weight loss, between 10 and 19% weight loss, is the best, all right? But if you continue to want, it is recommended. But if you continue to want to lose weight beyond the 10%, what'll happen is you'll get a 25% improvement above and beyond what you get with 10%, all right? But that's a lot of weight to lose, and we don't normally suggest that because uh, it could get discouraging to try to lose that much weight from the start. So, you know, we go in increments. Let's get to five first, and then let's get to 10 by 18 months. And if people are doing really well and they get to 10, and they go, you know, I, I feel good. I, and if they want to continue to lose more weight, and and it's deemed that it's, it'd be healthy to do that, right, because we have our physicians, and, and we allow them continue to go ahead and lose weight, And it makes a difference, it makes a difference. But the increment from 10 to 20 is not as great as it is from zero to 10.
2: That's really good. And you've already, again, touched a little bit upon this in terms of what's the the most effective way to lose weight in terms of being the combination of diet and exercise. But I just wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and explain, I guess, the environment that you've set up um, in the work that you're doing with the people around you, but also the, the aspects of the diet and a little bit more about the strength and exercise component.
3: Yeah, so, you know, I'm a a former engineer, right? I was a civil engineer. So from an engineering standpoint, the losing weight is all about an equation. It's calories in and calories out. Personally, and I wouldn't tell our patients this, but personally, I don't care what calories you're eating, right, just eat fewer of them, burn, more than what you're eating but a good amount of our participants most of them really kind of latch on to the quality of the food that they're eating so we have our interventionists who are skilled in nutrition and also also into the psychological aspects of how to present that information in a good way and so they get really into that uh, right now in a study we have about I'd say about half of them that are on the diet and exercise are using MyFitnessPal, and they love it. They love it. They can get it right on their cell phone as long as they can see it.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's an app that's freely available and allows a person to track how much they're burning as well as how much they're taking in.
3: Right, and it's pretty easy, you know, because all the foods are there, so it's not like you have to look them up and how much what the calories are. It's just oh, it's a, just a click, and, and so you know in. We want them to get excited about it in any way that they want. There's more than one way to do this. Some people just want to count calories. Some people don't want to. The women tend to want to count the calories more than the guys for some reason. Uh, So they would rather count the calories. The guys would say, just tell me how much weight I have to lose and I'll lose that kind of thing. All of our interventionists are trained by our health psychologist in social cognitive theory, which is really self-efficacy right, having confidence, instilling confidence in the patients that they can do this. So the treatment then is presented in the same fashion, no matter who's doing it, everyone is is trained that way. Even the people who are blinded to what group they're in and just do the testing, they are also trained in social cognitive theory. And what I say is every single person who comes into contact with our participants can either have a positive effect on them or they can have a negative effect. Whether you're an undergraduate student volunteering (laughs) or you're the PI of the study, every time you interact with the participant, there's a chance you can have a good effect or a bad effect. And one bad effect outpaces 10 good effects. And so we are really careful, especially with our students who come in, that the minute they walk through that door, they have to be on. They, they cannot afford to say something that really turns on from participants. So, so we have that. And, and, I, and I think that really has a lot to do with the adherence that we have and the retention we have in our studies, which I think is not too bad. It's pretty good
2: recapitulating that supportive environment where a person gets adequate help and encouragement from from the staff is is really important and you're in the process of doing some further work where you're doing this in a community to see if that can be implemented on a wider scale and that's obviously really important outside of the context of a clinical trial to see that we can translate that into into real world but i think it's you know it's important for people to understand that steve People around the world, including in Denmark um, and we in Australia, have done done these, this sort of implementation work where we've got Steve's results and we've implemented that on, on a larger scale and have obtained similar results in terms of pain and function. So it can be done, but it's really important you find someone to support you through that process, whether that be a dietitian a nutritionist, someone with hopefully adequate psychological support, so that they will support you, so that there is someone to keep you accountable and and move you through that.
3: And David, I think, you know, right now in the world we're living in right now is a challenge, obviously, because we don't have face-to-face contact with folks and, and you and and Kim are, are more expert at this than we are as far as doing this all from telehealth, you know, and uh, uh, we're struggling with that right now. And our, our staff is, is doing a really good job of of doing that but it's not having face-to-face contact with folks is difficult
2: yeah and it's uh, i don't want to underestimate the importance of having that face-to-face contact but at times at times like this it's really important to try to avail yourselves of that remote access the telehealth opportunities we'll share some of those resources and links to remotely delivered services so that people can hopefully look at some of that information and access some of those remote services
1: let's take a quick break to hear conversations in the waiting room.
2: We have an interesting question to hear from a listener who recently had an episode of septicemia, so a disseminated infection, which required a stay in hospital and then was successfully treated with antibiotics. The infection appears to have uh, made his left hip osteoarthritis somewhat more severe, and he's still having some difficulty walking uh, because of pain on that side and, and some loss of mobility. The people who were looking after him suggested that the bug might've found a place in the hip. fluid did not appear to suggest that there was a direct infection. So the question was, are blood infections of this kind known to aggravate existing cases of osteoarthritis. So it's an unusual case. It's obviously hopefully not something many of you will experience many times in your lifetime. But I guess the most rational explanation in this context is the symptoms of septicemia may have led you to be immobile and sedentary for a period of time. And as a consequence of that, decondition, so lost muscle strength and function around that area. And with that developed increased stiffness and loss of mobility. This is not uncommon when people are in hospital or are less physically active than they normally are for a period of time. So that's one possible explanation. The other possible explanation is that we know that osteoarthritis is associated with systemic inflammation that can be exacerbated or precipitated by another infection. And I guess the common one we see is the flu or other viruses like that, but it wouldn't be unheard of to suggest that a person who might have had an episode of a bacterial infection that was disseminated through the body could have exacerbated their underlying inflammatory state and led to increased inflammation in the joint and symptoms thereof. Now, obviously with inflammation related to an infection, you wanna treat that with antibiotics to treat the infection directly, and hopefully with that, the systemic inflammation will come down. And with regards uh, the immobility, the sedentariness, the deconditioning and loss of range of motion, ideally working through that by improving the range of motion of the joint, improving strength, and ultimately regaining mobility. And in that context, sometimes physiotherapists or exercise physiologists may be able to help. So I hope that advice was helpful. And look forward to many more listener questions moving forward.
1: If you have any questions, you can email them to hello at jointaction.info. And we'll try and feature them on our next episode. And now back to this episode of Joint Action.
2: If you could just unpack a little bit the dietary intervention just in terms of how many calories how you implement that and the exercise
3: it depends on on their body weight but a minimum of 1200 calories a day if you're a female and 1500 if you're a male and that depends on on your body weight to begin with they can have up to two meal replacements a day uh, for the first six months and then they're Third meal, their dinner is just about 500 calories, you know, and is 500 to 750 calories and is um, just a normal, healthy dinner, low in fat. And we don't ask them to deny themselves of anything. If they want a sweet, they, they can have that. Just try to have less of it, but try to stay within your calorie budget. And they're gradually weaned off the meal replacements to the, and then they substitute things on their own and replacements. And what often happens, David, is that they'll they'll start off and, and they'll get to a point where they hit a plateau. Lots of times we've seen this about seven or eight percent of their body weight and we want them to get to 10 and they get to about seven or eight and they kind of can't get any further. So first thing we ask is, do you want to go further? Some people get to seven or eight and even though we want them to get to 10, what really counts is what they want. Right? And they get to 7 or 8 and they go, wow, I look great. I feel great. I think I'm going to stay here. And we go, okay, 10 is better. The research shows that 10 is better. But if that's where you want to stay, then let's work on you staying there. But if they want to get there and they're having a difficult time, then we'll put them back just for a short amount of time on those meal replacements. Kind of as a boost to kind of get that extra few percentage. And then the exercise is pretty simple. It's walking 40 minutes a day three days a week so we do 15 or 20 minute walk separated by a 15 minute strength training and then another 15 or 20 minute walk right. and we put the strength training in there because as you lose weight some of that weight that you lose is muscle mass right we would like it to be all fat mass, but a good percentage of that weight that you lose is muscle mass so the strength training is to help to reduce the loss of muscle mass as they as they go along and that combination really works the exercise and the diet it really works and we don't ask them to lose too quickly all right and we have alert values if they lose too much too quickly then we stop make make sure we check with their physician and make sure that they're not getting sick or something like that and that that they're still doing it in a healthy way
2: fantastic and what readily accessible patient-friendly resources are you aware of that can help people to implement that style of change?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, I said MyFitnessPal, the USDA, the Department of Agriculture has one called MyPlate. And that's really nice too. Not so many of our, our people use that one, but they're both apps. MyFitnessPal and MyPlate are both apps. Uh, that you can get. And they pretty much do
2: the same thing.
3: It's whatever you're comfortable with.
2: Yeah, And we'll, uh, we'll include both those resources in the show notes and in addition to that, some additional programs that might help to implement changes similar to what Steve's talking about. Is it cost-effective? And why are we not seeing healthcare systems <laughs> adopt these more widely?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, David. We have a team of people from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. It's part of Harvard and they are cost-effectiveness experts. Uh, The person who leads that group is named Elena Losina. So she took our idea data, and where we had 10% weight loss with diet and exercise, and looked at the cost-effectiveness of that, and found that it was highly cost-effective, highly cost-effective. They talk about something called quality-adjusted life years gained. And what essentially that means is one quality adjusted life year gained is one year, one additional year of perfect health. And in general, the, the rule of thumb there is $100,000 per quality adjusted life year gained is, is cost effective. Uh, and $50,000 per quality adjusted life year gained is highly cost effective. Diet and exercise was only $34,000 per quality adjusted life year gain. And so it's highly cost effective. And that's what people who run hospitals want to hear. We've been trying to do that. In addition to everything else that we're doing, we've had several hospital systems. Uh, one, the University of Missouri hospital system and a hospital system here in North Carolina have taken up and started implementing our program in their areas with their patients. It's a slow process uh, because the administrators wanna see the bottom line work in their favor very quickly. And of course, in the beginning, there is cost to this. But the cost compared to the cost it takes for a knee replacement is, is so small. It's just been difficult. One of the people in charge of one of the hospitals in Minnesota said to me, he says, well, he says, you have a chance. Better like he says, I see a lot of people that come in and have ideas, but they have no data. We have data. We have data to show that this really works. So I think what it's going to take is one group to really embrace this throughout the whole system. And I think you'll find it will go fast." after that. So we're working on it slowly. Uh, it's it's not easy.
2: Yeah, and I really encourage you to continue to do that. And we're having obviously some success in implementing programs similar to that in Australia and a number of other countries where they're doing these multidisciplinary programs. And I think it's incredibly important that our healthcare system moves from one where it advocates for health and doesn't necessarily react to a person's pain with expensive both investigations and interventions, as you say. Uh, the cost of joint replacements in this in this scenario varies a lot between healthcare systems, but in most healthcare systems around the world, it's probably about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a piece. So you don't need to get too many people to lose weight in order to see a benefit there.
3: I've had orthopedic surgeons from the West Coast of the United States to the East Coast call me and go, Steve, you got to do something about these patients with all this weight. I said, I can't do all these knee replacements. So an orthopedic surgeon tells you that he needs help because he can't do all those surgeries. You know there's a problem.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. A healthcare system needs to change. But for the individual who wants to lose weight, I just wonder if you could expand a little bit upon the barriers there are to losing weight um, and how one might overcome them.
3: The barrier to lose the weight is one, David.
2: But I think the
3: bigger barrier is once you lose the weight, it gets very discouraging if you regain it. And as you well know, we're trying to work on that. We have people who have lost weight, and we're trying to see if they can uh, maintain that weight loss for long periods of time. And it's very difficult to do, and there's very little if any studies that have shown that there are actually effective ways to, to do that. So many people who are overweight have lost weight and then regained it lost weight and then regained it and it becomes very discouraging for them and while we have good data to show how to lose weight we don't have good data to show how to maintain that weight loss and as you know we're working on that now and we're not the only ones but uh i think that's that is the big barrier uh more than losing the weight is maintaining the weight loss once you lost
2: lost. And what strategies are you using in order to encourage people to to maintain the weight loss?
3: Sure, having confidence or self-efficacy to lose weight is much different than having the confidence that you can keep the weight loss off, right, that you can maintain the weight loss. It is really different. You're overweight and you decide I want to lose some weight. And you get into a program like ours or like yours, and you're motivated and you lose the weight. You feel really good about yourself. And because you have the confidence that you can do it, either through the interventionists or you already had it on your own, uh, you have you have that confidence or you gain that confidence, but that confidence is different than once you've lost the weight to now, okay, I've got the rest of my life, I have to keep this off, <laughs> okay, and, and that's a different animal, all right, and no one has figured out yet how to do that, but we think that having an increase in self-efficacy or an increase in confidence to be able to maintain that weight loss is, is got to be something and that's really a psychological aspect. So, we really have health psychologists that work with us, and and, and that's the aspect that we're, uh, that we're embarking on is to try to increase their confidence that they can maintain the weight loss that they already have.
2: Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think a, a really key message that I think Steve is portraying here is that it's not something that a lot of people find great ability to do themselves completely. And it's important to, to find an alliance with someone who's going to be supportive of that process so that they can carry you through that. That's fantastic, Steve. Now I'm going to move on to a series of sort of short, sharp questions, uh, a little bit about you and the work that you do. But what's, what's something that you like to do that other people would probably consider weird if they knew that?
3: Well, once a week, I get up at 4 a.m. and go out for a run at 4.30. And I'm back before I go for about an hour run. I get back. I think it's just to get up that early and get going uh, once a week. I think kind of makes me feel like I got a little bit on every, a little bit advantage on everyone else, and it just kind of it keeps me going. It's kind of weird, but I, my wife doesn't like me going out and running in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> I don't carry my cell phone, or I don't use a light. Uh, that's, I'm old school. So I'm it's, it's, it,
2: it's not like hills in uh, Switzerland either, right? Is it?
3: No, but you know about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's the
2: biggest challenge you have with your role right now, and how are you going to overcome yeah. that?
3: Um, you know when we go to meetings and you have these these consultations with uh, students, and you they're asked, you're supposed to talk to them about their professional life, and the thing I I I go to every time. I mean, I know they know their area. I don't talk about that at all. I talk about the the home. Work balance in life, and and for me, it's a balance in teaching. Uh, I'm at Wake Forest University. It's a school of only 5,000 undergraduates, and then we have a medical school, a business school, and a law school. And uh, so it's a small school, and we have what we call the teacher-scholar ideal—that uh, they want us all to be really good teachers and to be scholars as well. I tell people that uh, essentially it's two full-time jobs and you get paid for one. Right? But no one put a gun to my head to be here. I just love being in the classroom, but I also love doing my research. So I have three things to balance. I have my teaching, my research, and my home life. Yeah, And, uh, yeah. and it's always a struggle. And sometimes I do it better than others. And if I'm not doing it well, I have people that will let me know that.
2: Yes, yeah, thanks, Dave. <laughs> So moving right along, if you can do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do?
3: Well, I think we're planning it right now. I mean, you're involved in this and it's the, the osteoarthritis a prevention study. So there are no cures right now for osteoarthritis. So what we have done or what both of us have done for a long time is to try to find ways to rehabilitate people and to decrease their pain and improve their function and try to delay or prevent navy placement essentially. But uh, the best way then would be to prevent getting osteoarthritis in the first place and so that's a huge task. So we're taking uh, people, uh, our plan right now is to take people who are at high risk for developing osteoarthritis and with a combination of diet and exercise over a period of four years, see if we can prevent them from getting osteoarthritis compared to a control group. And to me, that would be the combination of, of my career. Uh, I'm still in the middle of yours, but uh, that would be the combination of mine. If we could do that and show something like that, I think that would be a significant... I think we would move the needle forward.
2: Yeah, it's really exciting sure. and important work, and I'm, I'm happy to share that, that journey with you. What's the most important thing you've learned in your life? Think big. Yep. Think big.
3: You know, if you can think big, then what comes along with that is you can't be afraid to fail. Because when you think big, you're going to fail sometimes. (laughs) You know, but think big, be passionate about it. And if you fail, just get back up.
2: Yeah, that's sagely advice. And what should I have asked you, but I wasn't smart enough? To know enough about it to ask. You didn't ask me
3: about the Boston Red Sox.
2: (laughs) It's going to be a while before there's any baseball played, right?
3: You're right. You're not smart enough to ask me about the book.
2: (laughs) Steve's a diehard Red Sox fan and having lived in Boston for a few years, we we shared that a little bit, but he's obviously much more passionate than I am about it. Life without
3: baseball has been very difficult.
2: I hope it doesn't go on for too long, but if you could have a billboard with anything on it, Uh, What would it be and why?
3: Well, I guess um, I have several sayings I have on my board that I look at just to check, you know, me every once in a while. One of them is success is when preparation meets opportunity or luck is when the preparation meets opportunity. So so you can say, you know, you're going along and you achieve something and you say, well, I was lucky with that, but not really. You know, as everyone would say, you make your own luck, and I think you really do. Some people say, I'm just not lucky. Well, maybe that's true, but it may also be that they have not prepared the way that they should have.
2: Having had the privilege of sharing that with you a number of times, I think your engineering brain and the preparation you bring to this definitely uh, instills the, the opportunity to see some of the great success that you've actually brought to this. So Steve, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. For all the listeners out there, that's all for this episode of Joint Action. And so between now and next time, do take care of yourself, stay strong, stay active. Thanks very much for listening. And Steve, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. And please leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
0: Hold up. What was that?